You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. to Hebrews 6 today. There is lots of heavy lifting for us to do today, and so we're going to simply jump into verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to verse 8 today. Now, if you notice, if you follow our agenda, I'm cutting out verses 9 through 12. There's a lot here, and we're going to revisit those verses next week. So let's read this together. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there, or we'll have it on the screen as well. You'll remember these passages from last week. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits." Now, if we remember from last week, we have an author, the writer of the book of Hebrews, who is writing to his people, and he's wanting to discuss greater things of importance, but he can't. He has truths and ideas that he wants to bring to them that will be for their joy and for their, for their, uh, their betterment, but he can't teach them these things because he says that they are dull of hearing. Now, when he says dull of hearing, we know that he's calling them lazy. And their laziness revolves around them re-examining the basic doctrines of Christ, how one becomes righteous and lives righteously in front of a holy God. And so what is the root of this re-examination, of this immaturity? Why are they picking up again things that should be settled and they should be building off of these things as a foundation? Why are they picking them back up and questioning them? Well... This is a response that comes directly from fear. This little first century church is under great persecution and pressure from the culture around them in that day. Now, pressure is an interesting thing, isn't it? Pressure elicits only a few realities. You can put pressure on something directly, and if those things or objects aren't elemental, if they're not true, if they're not pure, then they will get crushed. Think of it this way. If you have an iPhone, and you go out and you put it on a railroad track, and the train comes, your iPhone will no doubt be crushed by the weight of the train coming over it, rendering it useless to you. Now, if you would take something like carbon, which is very elemental, and you would place carbon down and you would apply pressure and heat over a long period of time, what would happen? Well, those carbon atoms would begin to link arms with other carbon atoms, and they, under that pressure, would begin to reveal something far more beautiful and valuable than what it began as. You've made a diamond. Now, the third response to pressure is to panic. 
panic. Now, you might feel the pressure, and if you're an iPhone, feeling that pressure and panicking might be a good thing because you're getting get crushed. But if you're carbon and you feel that pressure and you run away from it, you have robbed yourself of becoming more valuable and beautiful. You have robbed yourself of the pressure and the heat that actually purifies and refines you to make you something more glorious and beautiful than you could have ever have been. Carbon by itself, without pressure, is only beneficial for burning. But with high temperature and pressure, carbon reveals something innately more beautiful than it began with. And so that is what is happening within this text. If we take our understanding of pressure onto this first century church, we see that because of the culture around it, these people are panicking. They're trying to escape. In a sense, they are doing what is called self-preserving. They are trying to safeguard themselves from harm, but they have forgotten the most glorious and fundamental truth, that they possess the most foundational need of all humankind. Jesus Christ, the glorious risen Savior. The writer says, don't lay again a foundation. They have the foundational truth, the pure truth of humankind. But instead of letting that pressure reveal it to be far more beautiful and truer than they could ever imagine, they have panicked and they are seeking escape. And I think this is important for us, church, today, that we remember that as the pressure of culture and the world increases around us, that we need not to panic because we have the truth of Christ. We have the most foundational truth of all of humankind, that Jesus Christ has come as a ransom for our sins. And if we stay enduring, if we persevere together like carbon, linking our arms together under that pressure under that persecution, what will be revealed is something far more glorious than we ever could have without it. And so there is a sense, believer, that struggle is necessary, that pressure is necessary for God's image to be most glorified in this world. And so we remember that the author of Hebrews has already said to us that Jesus was proven to be sufficient and good through what? Through suffering. Through suffering. A church without pressure, a church without struggle, isn't as useful as one that is in the midst of it. This church, this first century church, has panicked. And here's what they're doing they are leaving behind the basic doctrines of Christ and they're reverting back to their very Jewish understanding of certain concepts that have changed because of who Jesus is. Now, in verses 1 and 2, our author gives us three pairings of truths that are foundational that both, or all three, I should say, have roots both in Judaism and Christianity. And so these are the three groupings. The first is repentance of dead works and faith towards God. The second is instruction about washing and laying on of hands. 
And the third is resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These, as I've said, significance in both Judaism and Christianity. If you were a Jew in that first century, you would have understood repentance to be repenting of dead works towards obedience of the law. That you are trying to earn righteousness through greater obedience to the law. But with Christ, it has changed. It is in repentance a turning away from yourself and your sinful nature, but it has a very positive act alongside of it, putting our faith in God. Because we know this, is that we cannot save ourselves through greater effort and morality. The only thing that saves us is faith in the perfect Christ who does it for us. Now, these ideas of instructions of washing and laying on of hands, this would be symbolic of how one enters into relationship with God. If we think of the temple, if we think of the Old Testament, we know that the temple contained the very presence of God. And for somebody to come into relationship with God, they first must undergo some washings of purification. And so they would wash themselves to do what? To remove the impurities, the dirt from their outside. But we know that Jesus has changed after this, all of it. This is talking about baptism in the Holy Spirit. Jesus has redefined this, that we don't enter relationship with God through washing ourselves from the outside, but through baptism in the Holy Spirit, God cleans us through his spirit from the inside. And then lastly, this idea of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment has a different connotation today because of Jesus. If you were a first century Jew, you would have understood resurrection in this way. Now, this idea of resurrection was hotly debated within the time. There was a group of people called the Sadducees. Maybe you've heard of them before. They did not believe in a bodily resurrection, but there are also a group of people called the Pharisees who did believe in resurrection. And so if your perspective in that day was that there was a resurrection, your belief would be that there would be a Messiah that would come, and with that Messiah, all of God's people would be raised from the dead. Now, Jesus makes a different claim. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. It isn't about God's people being raised from the dead, but God is going to raise his own divine son from the dead to give life to all of those who trust in him by grace through faith. But more than that, Jesus becomes the standard in which all of the world will then be judged. There will be a day and someday in the future, who knows what it is, where Jesus will separate those who love him versus those who do not. And so it's important for our understanding of any scripture to understand what is happening in here. And so these terms that the author has just talked about have very common links within Judaism and Christianity. And that is going to make it far easier for people in that day to revert back to some of their basic understandings. They're not giving up the whole ship, right? They're just moving on some things that can sort of have different meaning. And so we need to understand this link as we move into verses 4 through 8. And so let's pick up our text again. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, it says this, For it is impossible... 
in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, these verses historically have a wide berth of interpretation. There's lots of ways to go about interpreting these verses, mainly because they ask us two very difficult and fundamental questions. One question that they bring to us is this. Can someone lose their salvation? And the second question is different but like it. Is there something I can do or not do that will cost me my salvation? Or you could say this, is there a sin that I might commit that unbeknownst to me I will lose my salvation? And so we're going to talk about that. But I first want to let you know that, look, you don't always have to sit with agreement with me on the things that I teach and the things that I think. There is a wide berth of interpretation within this text that is both edifying and good, right? So listen, there are doctrines within the Christian faith that we can have unity despite the fact that we have varied beliefs about those things. Now, there are things that if we don't agree on that we're going to have some problems in those things. But there is an amount of doctrine that we can have varied beliefs and still have unity, and this is one of those areas. Now, I come from the school of belief that once you have tasted the goodness of God, once God has saved you, I should say, then you will not walk away from that salvation. That is a stance that is simplified into the term once saved, always saved. Now, as is the truth with most every doctrine. There is nuance of of what that means and what that doesn't mean, and we'll get into that a little bit. But I want you to know that I have devout and wonderful and loving friends who believe different than I do, that they believe that if you can pick up faith, then you have the option of walking away from it. You can have that belief, but I think that in every case, Scripture has to submit to the context that it comes in. And so we have to bring what we just talked about into this idea of salvation. And so the writer's intended audience, as we remember, is that of one who are Jewish believers in this time that have professed the name of Jesus. We have to know what is going on, why is he writing to them, but also we have to understand that all of the scripture No matter how narrow the scripture that we take to try to interpret, all the scripture has to withhold scrutiny. It has to withhold the scrutiny of the entire narrative of the text being forced on it. And so let's let's bring this into this verse. So we have a church filled with Jewish believers professing Jesus to be Messiah. They're under pressure that's causing some of them to panic from these settled truths. They need to let them be settled and build on that foundation but they're picking them back up again. Some are questioning, some are backsliding. And what is the contents of the truths that they are now questioning and backsliding on? Well, these 
are the basic elemental doctrines of salvation by Christ. We just talked about repentance and faith and baptism and the Holy Spirit and resurrection and judgment. These are the basic tenets of the new covenant. The new covenant is God's agreement with his creation through Christ of how he's going to redeem and rescue us from sin and death and judgment. We remember that our scripture teaches all of us, as the apostle Paul says, that all of us have sinned, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that we are a broken creation in need of redemption. And what this text is reminding us of is that redemption is only possible through faith in Jesus. And so this author has spent, if you've been here for the last 10 weeks, he has spent a great amount of time reminding them that Jesus is better than virtually everything that they could ever imagine, that Jesus is better than the prophets of old, that he's better than any angel that they've ever heard of or they ever think that they might have talked to. He says that Jesus is better than Moses, who would have been the greatest leader of the Jewish faith. He says that Jesus is the full radiance of God himself that he is the son of God who became the son of man. Now, that's a title. He would serve as the representation of all of humankind in front of a holy God. That is a role called the great high priest, that Jesus brings to God through himself a once and forever sacrifice for sin and death through his own blood. And it is by his blood and through his blood that we as creation are redeemed and then in his resurrection we are brought into new life with him. So what that means is that these verses in 6 are, are not, listen, they are not about the normative Christian struggles with sin. This isn't about the normative struggle of sin that's going to cost you your salvation. This isn't about someone who's struggling with doubt in their faith, losing their salvation. This isn't about any of those things. Don't read into the text with that lens. What the context of the scripture tells us is this is about former Jews who have come to know and profess Jesus, who have now rejected him. And they have reverted back to salvation by dead works through obedience to the law, through temple sacrifice, because they have panicked from the pressure of the world around them and the persecution that they are facing. They have sought approval and solace in the known world at the time who would have fully accepted and valued Judaism at the time. And so for us today, what that simply means, what this is simply saying, is if somebody says yes to Jesus through faith, that Jesus is the salvation for the forgiveness of our sin, if we have tasted of his goodness, and then we reject him for another salvation, whether it be another religion, or our own moral virtue, or worldly praise, that person is in trouble. And they're in trouble they're in trouble because they stand with the crucifiers of Jesus who hung Jesus because they believed he was merely a man. They crucify Jesus merely as a man. They have held him up into contempt. They have said he's a fraud. And that is for, as the scripture says, for their own harm. 
Again, this isn't about struggling normatively with sin. This is a willful decision to deny the deity and the power of Christ in salvation. It's not like, oh, I'm in my struggle, I hope God can forgive this. It's to say, God can't forgive this. God won't forgive this. Now, the word impossible here is an interesting word. The word impossible... uh, If you hear this phrase, for it is impossible, if you have some degree of of reading the scripture in your past, your mind might drift to some verses uh, where Jesus is talking about a rich young ruler, and he's talking to his disciples about wealthy, the rich entering into the kingdom of God. Now, we'll put this on the screen. Matthew 19 is where we find this. And this is, these are the words of Jesus. He says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And so they're panicked. Because in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, your love for God was often linked to your prosperity. It was believed that the more you loved God, the more favor he showed you, not just spiritually, but materially. And as we do as humans, like this is our thing, we make that very perverted. And so what was beginning to happen in that day is that there were people who were just gathering up wealth and material, and they were saying, look how holy I am. Look how much God loves me. Look at all my stuff. Now, we know, right, in the new covenant that Jesus is going to flip all of that on his head, that it's not about status, it's not about wealth, but it's about faith in the Son. Now, listen to what Jesus says here in this text to his panic disciples. Maybe you remember these words in Matthew 19, 26. He says, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so what is going on here? Like, what is going on here? If all things are possible for God, then how is this an impossibility? Uh, how is this an impossible? Well, I think, I think there are ways in which you can take the Greek word for impossible and you can, you can translate it more into highly improbable. But I think more so that the improbability here lies more on the side of man than it does on God and his ability. Now, think of it this way. If somebody put a premium cut, dry-aged filet mignon in front of you, right, and it is perfectly cooked, and you eat the whole thing, you are enlightened, you taste it, you share of it, and at the end of eating all of it, you look at your friend and you say, "Ah, this wasn't that good. I think that I'm going to stay with the chicken from going forward. First of all, we are going to have a hot debate, right? That is ridiculous, okay? Secondly, here's my question. Are you ever going to order the filet mignon again? No, you're not. You have had the best. The chances of you ordering that again are slim to none. And the same is true for those who have been lightened by the Son of Man. They have the best thing humanity has ever had going for it. And if they reject that for some other salvation then why in the world would they ever come back to Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. And so that improbability or that impossibility also lies with the side of man. Now, let's talk about this question. 
It's a hard question. Can you lose your salvation? Is it possible to lose your salvation? Can somebody who truly believes in the resurrection, that truly authentically believes in Jesus, fall away? Now, if you read these texts, the text that we just read, that seems to indicate that it's very likely that it's possible. But I would contend to you that definitions matter. And what does it mean when we say that you're a Christian? And so if we look back at those verses in chapter 6, verses Four through five, there are some terms that our author paints about what it means or what a believer, the believer in this context looks like. I'm going to look at these on the screen. He says uh, four different words. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened. Now, enlightened simply means that one knows about the glorious truth of Jesus and have tasted the heavenly gift. That signifies that they have shared in communion the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. That would be they have been baptized and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That they've heard the word and they've experienced the miracles or signs and wonders or even the power of God's community together. And so the weight of those words, do they not, contend to us that this is a picture of somebody who truly and authentically believes in Jesus. But, now this is my question, does it mean if you're enlightened, that if you taste it and you've shared in the blessings of God, that your heart is actually regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, that it's actually renewed? And the answer that I come to, of course, is no. Do you really need to trust in authentically in Jesus to know who he is? Do you really need to authentically believe and trust in Jesus to participate in communion? No. Do you really have to trust and believe in Jesus to be baptized? No. Do you really have to trust and believe in Jesus to enjoy God's power amongst his community? No. The answer to me is no. These aren't marks of the true believer. Enlightenment, tasting, and sharing is not the marks of the true believer. They are works and benefits of those who come near those who love God. But it doesn't actually mean that you believe. Now, Judas is a prime example here. Now, many would use Judas as an example to say, see, you can walk away from the faith. How does Judas... Right? How does Judas, after seeing everything that he saw, after sharing and tasting in all the divine glory and status and wisdom of God, betray him? How does he do this? Let's remember this. Very early in the days of the 12 disciples, Jesus looks at his disciples long before they went through a lot of different things. And he looks at his disciples and he says what? He says, one of you is a devil. Jesus knows that there is one in his midst that will to fulfill the plan, one who is in his midst that is of unbelief. Jesus, or Judas has shared with all of the blessings, all of the benefits of being with Christ, but he's never believed and surrendered. Now, consider the analogy, right? Let's consider the analogy that our author brings into this teaching here in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 6. Kind of a parable. He says in 6, 7 through 8, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
Now, is this a story of good soil that has gone bad? It is not the story of good soil that has gone bad. It's the story of two pieces of land that have received the same rain. And in scripture, rain is symbolic for the blessings of God being rained down on creation. One of those lands have received the rain and they have grown forth a crop, a blessing to all those around him. The others receive the same rain and produce thorns. Now, if you are hearing this idea of rains and thorns and growth, your mind is echoing Jesus' greatest, maybe greatest parable, the parable of the sower, the parable of the soil, Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9. We remember this parable from our Sunday school days, maybe. He says this, Jesus says this in Matthew, a sower went out to sow, and he And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell amongst thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, the seed here is the gospel, is the good news of Jesus. And that seed falls on four different types of soil that symbolize the human heart. And what Jesus is saying here is that not everybody who hears of the good news of Christ will follow Jesus. Not everybody who hears of him will prove to be his disciples. For some, it will fall, and they will never hear it. For some, it will fall, and they'll get really excited, right, and celebrate in enthusiasm, but as quickly as it started, it will fall away. The other, who is so worldly, the seed falls, but it cannot grow amongst the worldly thorns and thistles that are growing up in the life. But what is the proof of a believer here? that the good seed falls in the good soil and it creates a good crop. That is the true, authentic mark of a believer. Jesus says this, that you will know his people by their fruits. What is crops? Crops is another term for fruits. So those of faith are proven to be true and authentic by the crop that they produce, by the fruit that they produce. The fruit bears evidence to the one that they love, but listen, they also endure. They also endure. And this has been the constant theme of the book of Hebrews that our writer has spoken to his readers. If we look back on Hebrews 3, in verse 6, he says this, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He is the inheritor of all things. He is faithful to his house. And who is or his house? His, we are his house, those of faith in Jesus. And, and what is the condition of us being the house? If indeed we hold fast our confession, our, our, hold for our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What is the evidence that we are God's house, whom Christ is faithful to? It's that we hold fast and persevere. He goes on in 14 to say, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. How have we come to share in Christ? If and only if we hold firm to the end. We prove our relationship with Christ through 
endurance. So two marks of a believer, two marks of a believer here. Believers are known by their fruit and through their endurance. And listen, none of those things, none of those things can ever be created and sustained in our own lives. Because if they did, and if they could, the resurrection and death of Jesus would absolutely be pointless. All of this endurance and fruit is built and sustained by God himself through our simple trust and faith in Jesus. The weight of scripture humbles us when we hear that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. That the scripture tells of us that for those who God has called unto himself, he justifies. And those who God justifies, he glorifies. The scripture says that we are kept by the power of God through faith. And it says to us that we are sealed by the spirit until the day of redemption. And there are so many other glorious truths that we don't have time for. And so the question of can I lose my salvation is actually a very bad question for, lots, for maybe different reasons what, than what you are thinking. It's a bad question because it's a man-centric question. The better doctrinal question that's going to keep you theologically sound is this, is can salvation lose me? Can salvation lose me? And friends, I'm telling you this. If you came to faith because Jesus was revealed to you as the divine son only by God himself, if God is the author and the perfecter of our faith, then how can you ever walk away from something that you didn't begin with? Jesus is the author of our faith. And the warnings of these scriptures are true of all warnings, right? What is, why do people write warnings? Why do, what does the author of Hebrews write us? Warnings as there are warnings in other parts of Scripture. Why is he warning us about falling away? Well, they have a purpose. They have a purpose. What is true of all warnings? It only benefits those who hear them. It only benefits those who hear them. We think back to Hebrews 3 here. Quoting Psalm 95, our author says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in rebellion. If we hear these warnings and we take heed of them in our hearts, then it reveals that we are listening to the voice of God. Now, the danger as I see it, again, beloved friends, of people who believe that you can lose your salvation is the grave possibility of some reverting back to salvation based on our works, where you are trying to earn God's approval through your action, through your works, in order to keep your salvation. That is a dangerous road to walk. Now, I think there is an honest critique about those like me who believe that Jesus saves us and he keeps us. And it comes from believing or, or, or hearing somebody say, well, I profess faith in Jesus. I checked the box. And now I can just go into the world and do whatever I want. So I said yes to Jesus. So that means that, hey, he's going to keep me. He's going to save me. And I'm going to just do whatever I want. Well, what do we remember the marks of true believers are? They bear fruit and they endure. They don't see Jesus as a box to check. They see him as the author and the perfecter of our faith who grows us and sustained us. 
we are reminded, friends, that there are people who think that they are believers that someday will be exposed. Now, I'm not trying to scare you here. We'll talk about this. But in our scripture, if we look at 1 John verse, chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What is he saying? There are people who profess Christ, who went out into the mission field, and when they went out into the mission field, guess what? It revealed that they were not one of us. They were not a true believer in Jesus. And then we remember Jesus' word in Matthew 7. He says that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then, I, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, there will be people, and this is an intent to scare us, whom haven't been enlightened, who have tasted and shared all the benefits and the wonders of God that will one day be revealed by the pressure of the world or the judgment of God what will be revealed is the true nature of their heart and their unbelief. They want the benefits of Christianity, but they don't want its God. And so let me leave you <laughs> with a little bit of word of encouragement as we, we enter to some pretty downtrodden verses there. Let me leave you with a, a word of encouragement because I think this is difficult to hear. Look, if you're in here today and you're hearing this word and it concerns you at all about your salvation, man, that is a wonderful thing. That is a wonderful thing, that you care enough to consider your salvation as you hear this word is a glorious thing because it means that the high surgeon of heaven, God himself, is still working and active in your heart. Our God is long-suffering with his people. And so hear his word today and be humbled and let his voice grow in your heart and trust, defer your life to him. And so two things that I want you to think about as we leave this week. We're going to head into 9 through 20 next week, and we're going to continue this conversation. So there's a bit of an uptick next week. But I want to leave you with two thoughts that I think are for your joy. Right? I want you to consider the joy of what it means to have a God who found you, who revealed himself to you, whose affection rains down on you, not by anything that you have ever done. What a joy it is to know that the God of the universe shines his love down on you, not predicated on your actions, not predicated on anything but your faith in him. What a wonderful thing that is. And number two, I want you to consider and think about this, the necessity of one another, that we need each other. If we are to persevere, it will be together, not by ourselves. If we are to persevere, it will take carbon atoms, linking arms with other carbon atoms, who in the pressure of the world are refined to reveal something far more glorious and beautiful than we ever could have been on our own. Two thoughts to think about as we enter into this week. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, and we thank you that you are the author of our salvation. We thank you that through our faith in you, Lord, and our trust in you, that you do the work of fruit in our lives, that you bring us to endurance. Lord, help us to simply be faithful to you. That is all your scripture has called us to be. Let us be faithful to you, Lord, and you will do the rest. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we've got the filet mignon of the world. The greatest thing that could ever happen to us is your son. And so, Lord, let us go out today with the joy in our hearts, knowing that you have found us, that you have seen us, that you have revealed to us, and that your love and affection shines down on us, not by our works, but simply by yourself. And Lord, help us to be convicted and grow in our understanding of the necessity that we need each other that as the temperature of the world and the pressure of the world increases, that we need to rely on each other so that we can endure. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your wonderful and beautiful name. Amen.